Last May, we began a sermon series in the book of Acts called The Acts of the Risen Christ, Jesus' Work Through the End of the Age. And the reason we titled this series that was because in Acts chapter 1, we saw that after Jesus died and had risen from the dead, he then ascended to the right hand of the Father. And although he had ascended, was no longer walking on earth, he was continuing the mission he started in his life through his people, the church. And the final thing, as we heard earlier, that he entrusted to his disciples was to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in chapters 1 through 6, we largely focused on the development of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, The preaching of the gospel to the first people, the first Jews living in Jerusalem who believed it. And then in chapters 7 through 12, we saw that as persecution hit Jerusalem, it forced the church to scatter so that the gospel was taken to Samaria and to Judea. So the church began to spread in those regions, and Samaritans and Gentiles believed. And although we saw the gospel was being taken to all kinds of people, we hardly saw the gospel being taken to the ends of the earth, let alone any churches intentionally sending out their own people to take the gospels to the ends of the earth. And this is where we pick up when we come back now to Acts chapter 13. Our attention shifts from the development of the church in Jerusalem, the expansion of the church through Judea and Samaria, and now we begin to follow Paul and his missionary trips as he takes the gospel to the ends of the known earth. But before we see all that, we return to what God is doing in and through the church in Antioch. One of the last passages we considered before we began our Advent series was Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30, where we saw the founding of the church in Antioch. And we saw that it was the first known multi-ethnic church where Jews and Gentiles came together because of their shared faith in Christ. And as we considered that church, we considered characteristics of a faithful missional church. And we saw that a faithful missional church crosses local barriers with the gospel. A faithful missional church is nurtured in the gospel, and a faithful missional church pursues interdependent partnerships with other faithful churches. This is in part why we pray for other churches week after week when we gather for worship. But now as we pick up the story of the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, Luke turns our attention away from what faithful mission looks like by one church and the area they're planted in, and looks to what it looks like for that church to send faithful missionaries, to pursue faithful missions to the nations as they send missionaries to preach the gospel, plant new churches, and strengthen existing churches. And what we see here could not be more relevant to churches like ours that want to be faithful in God's mission to the nations. You may remember, as we considered the church in Antioch, we also considered some well-intentioned but ultimately unfaithful ideas of what it looks like to do ministry. We considered the seeker-sensitive model, attractional model that come through the missions principle called the homogenous unit principle that teaches it's easier for people to become Christians when they don't have to cross natural barriers like race, culture, class, or language, and therefore they urge us to take the gospel not to all people but along existing social lines and to form separate churches so that it's easier. And I'm not going to take the time to explain why that is well-intentioned, but ultimately unbiblical. And if you want to know more about why that is, you can go back and listen to the sermon titled, A Faithful Missional Church. But the reason I bring it up today is because that is hardly the only missions principle that is well-intentioned and adopted by many missionaries and many churches, but that ultimately is not biblically faithful. The missions field, unfortunately, has been overrun with an overemphasis on speed, numbers, and an overdependence on magic bullets that say, if you just do this thing, you're going to produce hundreds, even thousands of Christians, and then underappreciation for the training necessary to be faithful missionaries, not just for a year or two, but for the long haul. It's common now to assume that the best missionary work can be done cheaply and quickly, despite the fact that it takes a long time to learn a language well enough to explain the gospel in it, let alone teach the whole counsel of God faithfully. It's common to hear calls for missions that say, 
It's not whether you've been called to go, but whether you've been called to stay, implying that most people ought to go with no consideration for how a person's uh, biblical character, fruitfulness, or biblical knowledge might negatively impact the missions field if they were to go. And it's common even for missionaries in an effort to reach people for Christ to uh, begin to prioritize cultural contextualization over faithfulness to Scripture. I'm not saying that contextualization is wrong or unbiblical, but it is wrong to make that more important than faithfulness to Scripture. And this has led some missionaries to even tell new believers coming out of Islam and Hindu that they don't need to renounce Islam. They don't need to renounce Hinduism to be a Christian. They can be a Muslim Christian or a Hindu Christian and keep their new commitment to Jesus Christ secret. This is called the insider movement. In the environment we live in today, there are many well-meaning missionaries and churches that have become so urgent in their desire to reach people for Christ and to start new churches that they rush it. And these new churches then become a prey to false teaching, cults, or they simply dissolve. And this is why a group of pastors and theologians came together uh, through a series of affirmations and denials to describe what a biblically faithful mission looks like uh, in a little booklet called A Call to Faithful Missions. You can find that on the resource table if you'd like to consider more about what that looks like and what they're uh, writing about. And this week, this is why looking to the calling, sending, and initial work of the first missionaries in Acts chapter 13 is so important for us today as we want to give ourselves a faithful mission in the world. And so today, as we walk through Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, we're going to see seven characteristics of faithful missions. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are a missionary God who has pursued us and revealed yourself to us through your word. And yet, we do recognize that apart from the work of your Spirit, We can hear your word, but not understand it. We can see it, but not perceive it. Yet we long to hear and receive your word in faith. So we ask that your spirit would move in our hearts this morning so that we would receive your word in faith and so that we would be stirred up to be faithful to the mission you've entrusted to us because of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. I ask that you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be lifted up. And as we consider his glory and his beauty and his splendor, we would be moved to be faithful in the mission you've given us to the world. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you are using one of our community Bibles, you can... Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 13 on page 921. Uh, And if you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll be looking for a big, bold 13. That's a chapter, followed by a small number one. That's a verse. And once you've found it, I just encourage you to uh, surrender uh, your own burdens and distractions to the Lord quietly. You know what you have brought in this morning. You know what you're hoping to hear. Surrender those things to the Lord and ask that he would speak what he's prepared for you this morning. If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Look with me in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Here we see that faithful missions begins in healthy churches. Faithful missions begins in healthy churches. I want to notice that our passage brings us back to the church at Antioch. Again, the first church to reach and be made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which eventually led the people of Antioch to recognize the church there as Christians first, because Christ was the only explanation for what could bring these diverse group of people together. And now Luke zooms in on the leadership of that church that's designated here as prophets and teachers. 
Now, there's an ongoing debate today about how prophecy and teaching are distinct from one another and whether the gift of prophecy even continues to exist for today. We're not going to get into all of that debate, but I want to point out the reason it's difficult to distinguish the gifts of prophecy and teaching is because as you examine biblical prophecy, it's not primarily what we typically think of. When we think of prophecy, we primarily think of foretelling, predicting the future. But if you read the prophets, you see most of what they're saying is actually forthtelling. It's proclaiming God's message and calling for God's people to faithfully follow him, which is an awful lot of what teaching is supposed to do. And so it's hard to distinguish the two. That being said, there does seem to be some consensus that teaching is grounded in an inspired text of Scripture while prophecy is a bit more spontaneous in nature. However, as one scholar points out, we should not assume the boundaries between prophecy and teaching, or even apostles, were well-defined in the first century. Peter, Paul, and Barnabas seem to have all been apostles, prophets, and teachers all at once. But that being said, what is truly remarkable here is that these men who faithfully taught or prophesied God's word have grown to represent the diversity of the city they lived in. Look with me again at the names we find. First we see Barnabas. This is a Jew from Cyprus. The second is Simeon, who is called Niger. Niger is a Latin word for black. This is likely a black man from North Africa, a part of the leadership of this church. The third is Lucius of Cyrene, who is definitely a man who's come from North Africa. The fourth is Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And if you've been reading community Bible reading with us, you would have seen in John, uh, as it described John the Baptist, this is the same Herod who sentenced John the Baptist to death. He's the one who refused to deliver Jesus and offer justice for him. He's the man that all the Jews counted a wicked tyrant. This, is, this Herod is the man that Manan was a lifelong friend with. And fifth and finally, we find Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, who earlier in Acts we saw was one of the foremost persecutors of the church. It's this diverse group of people who are now leading the diverse church in Antioch. The Jews in this group would have naturally disliked the Gentiles from North Africa. And they certainly would have resented Manaean from being friends with the wicked tyrant who had ruled over and oppressed the Jewish people. Yet this diverse group of men are partnering together for the sake of the gospel. This is an indication of the spiritual health of the church. They truly were united in Christ alone, refusing to let natural or worldly barriers separate them. What Christ had joined together... They were fighting to hold together. And it's examples like these in Scripture that lead us to pray as a church that we would be a reconciled community where we demonstrate that our community is united because of Christ across every barrier that could divide us. Our hope and prayer is that as God does a work in and through us, we would increasingly reflect the diversity of our community, demonstrating that Christ in Christ alone is what is most important to us. But more important for the context of this passage, we should observe that it's in healthy churches where Christ is at the center like this one, that faithful mission begins. And so if we want to be faithful in our pursuit of mission to the nations, one of the ways we can give ourselves to that is by pursuing health as a church family. We should not set zeal for missions against zeal for a healthy community. In fact, when we are zealous for Christ, first and foremost, we will also be zealous for missions and zealous for a healthy community. And in fact, when we bring these two things together, we will not only give ourselves eagerly to the mission to the nations, but because we want it to be a healthy church community that we start, that mission will be faithful as well. So the first characteristic of faithful missions is that it begins in healthy churches. Look with me now at Verse 2, to see the second characteristic. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here we see faithful missions is initiated by the Holy Spirit. Faithful missions is initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's as this church was worshiping the Lord and fasting that the Holy Spirit calls them to set apart Barnabas and Saul. 
The Holy Spirit is the one who takes the initiative in calling them to this missionary activity. Not only does this reveal that the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force, as many people think, but he is a person, the third person of the Trinity, who is actively speaking and working as a person does to call Saul and Barnabas to missions. But this also reveals, since the Holy Spirit is God, that our God is a missionary God. This is not the first time that God has taken the initiative to pursue a people for himself. In creation, God did not have to create us. And yet, he decided to create people so that we could experience his love for his glory. When Abram was a pagan in Ur, he didn't have to pursue him, but he calls him out of his paganism, names him Abraham, the father of many nations, and takes him into the promised land, setting apart through Abraham a people for himself. And then when he calls the descendants of Abraham, Israel, and enters into a covenant with them, he says that they will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why? To demonstrate the excellencies of God's glory to the nations. He's calling a people for the sake of the nations. And then when we needed a savior, he sent his son Jesus. He took the initiative to send Jesus to become a human, to live among us a perfect life, to die on our behalf. And now... As the Father has sent Jesus, he is sending us into the world to be his missionaries, to make known the glory of Jesus. And when Jesus comes back, he will call together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to worship him in glory. And so no surprise then that the Holy Spirit's initiating work then takes place in the context of worship. Worship has both a broad and narrow sense. In the broad sense, worship Worship is a life lived in service to God. But in the more narrow sense, one theologian defines it as the act of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. And so it's as we gather for worship then that we taste and see that the Lord is good. It's as we worship that we get a vision for how big and glorious God is. It's as we worship that our hearts are filled with awe and wonder at our missionary God who sent his son into the world on our behalf. And as our hearts are satisfied with him, it's only natural then to long that others would see how good God is and come to worship him as well. And so if you find your heart isn't bursting with a longing for the gospel to go to the nations, As I said earlier in our call to worship, the answer is not to remind you of the desperate neediness of the lost. It's not to pull up the 1040 window and see how many people groups have never heard the name of Jesus. As helpful as those things can be and as exciting as those things can be, they are insufficient to stir up the right kind of motivation for missions. We have to begin with worship of God. As Andy Johnson writes in his little book, Missions, The heart of God-glorifying missions starts with joy in the gospel. We must first cherish the God who sent his own son to save sinners like us. So if you want to care more about the advancement of the gospel among the nations, then begin with worship. Begin with growing in your heart a greater love and affection for Jesus, for all that he's done and all that he is. Because it's he, by his spirit, who sends us. And if we don't love and worship him with everything we have, we will never go with the right motivation. We might go, but ultimately we will have other motivations that will ultimately lead us to pursue mission in unfaithful ways. But instead, worship of God is both the fuel of missions, it's our motivation, and it's the goal of missions. As John Piper is fond of saying, mission exists because worship exists doesn't. We go because of who God is, because we are worshiping him. We love him and all that he has done for us in Christ. And we go so that others may taste and see that he's good and come to worship him as well. And so if you need your heart to be reignited with a burden for the nations, begin with a love for God. Begin with a white hot worship of Jesus and all that he's done. And further, it's only when we love God more than anything else, when we treasure Jesus above all else, that we will be willing to pursue the cost that the church in Antioch did. Notice, the Holy Spirit set aside Saul and Barnabas. This was 
two out of five of the church's leaders. That's almost half. The Holy Spirit is sending out their best and most gifted to be missionaries in the world. This is a huge cost to the church of Antioch. And it's when we love God and are more interested in the growth of his kingdom than the growth of our church, the advancement of the gospel, or then the advancement here, we will be prepared to send out our best and most gifted members for the sake of the advancement of God's kingdom among the nations. And so I'd ask you this morning, are you prepared to send out our best and most gifted members for the sake of God's kingdom? If you're not prepared to send out those people that you may have come to love and cherish your relationship with them, what does that indicate about what you value most? I'll be honest, this is a scary thing for me. This is definitely what I long for in the long term. This is why one of our values is to pursue kingdom partnerships where we partner with others in the gospel by sharing our resources and sending out our members for the advancement of God's kingdom among the nations. But over the last three years, we've been rebuilding. We lost so much during COVID. We lost so much as a result of my transition to becoming the lead pastor. And it feels like we're finally beginning to gain momentum. And so I see something like this, and it makes me afraid. God, would you send someone now? Someone that we've come to love and cherish now when we're finally gaining momentum? And yet, I have to remind myself in these moments that if God did send someone, God is bigger than our church. God is bigger than the world. He is in control. He will be faithful. And so we can trust him with that. The second characteristic of faithful missions is that it's initiated by the Holy Spirit. And third, look with me in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here we see faithful missions is confirmed by the local church. Faithful missions is confirmed by the local church. Although the Holy Spirit is the one who initiates and sets apart Barnabas and Saul, he does so in a way that the church can discern and affirm that calling. They are the ones who lay their hands on them and send them out. But as I mentioned earlier, it's commonplace now to hear people have an inward sense that God is calling them into ministry, whether that's pastoral ministry or mission work, and to say, God has called me to this. And though they may not intend to do it, they say it in such a way, that puts people at arm's length for raising hesitations or concerns about that calling. Instead of saying, I think the Lord may be leading me to this, what do you think? They simply say, God has called me. You better not say anything about it. But that's not the way we see calling work in the scriptures. It does on occasion, the case of Moses, Isaiah. But normally the pattern we see is the Holy Spirit taking the initiative to give people an inward desire for vocational ministry. And then the church discerns and affirms that calling, assessing in them fruitfulness, character, biblical knowledge. And so here in confirmation of the Holy Spirit's call on Barnabas and Saul's life, the church of Antioch lays their hands on them and sends them out. Now, although we see in this account that this seems to go rather rapidly, the Holy Spirit says, set apart, they pray, they fast, they lay hands and send them out. But we need to recognize that the person they sent out, Saul, becomes known as Paul, and he writes in 1 Timothy 5 this, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. This is a reminder to us that the quickness we see here is not the paradigm for ministry. Paul's command to Timothy is the paradigm for our ministry. And the idea is that it takes time to discern whether someone is qualified and called into ministry. And so we should be careful and discerning rather than hasty and indiscriminate. And unlike the situation in Acts chapter 13, to obey Paul's command in 1 Timothy 5, that generally means we need to go slow. And so right now, as a church, we're entering into an exciting and unique season where missionaries that we have partnered with for decades are beginning to move towards retirement. They're coming off the mission field. And the temptation we might face as a church is to put someone in their place as quickly as we possibly can. But If we're going to take this seriously, that shouldn't be what we do. We need to go slow. As we prepare to partner with new missionaries, we want to take our responsibility seriously. 
to discern and affirm their calling. And biblically, it's not missions agencies that do this. This isn't denominations that do this. This is local churches that do this. And so as we consider partnering with new missionaries, we want to be careful to assess their character, their fruitfulness, their biblical knowledge, to make sure that those we send actually advance God's kingdom rather than hurt God's kingdom when they get to the mission field. If you remember, as I shared some of what we heard from the Coxes, that's what's happening some. As missionaries go eagerly to the mission field but aren't really ready, they're hurting rather than helping when they get there. And just to be clear, someone's willingness and eagerness to live overseas says nothing about their character, their fruitfulness, or their biblical knowledge. And further, this means we ought to look for the kind of missionaries that we would be delighted to have serve here as an elder or on staff. And if we wouldn't want them to serve in our church in that way, And there's probably a reason we should hesitate to partner with them, to send them where we have to trust that they're going to do faithful work without even being able to see their work. And of course, this kind of partnership takes time to build, discern, and evaluate. But on the flip side, if you are internally sensing a call to vocational ministry, maybe some of our teenagers, you think about the future and you're thinking, maybe the Lord would call me here, then I would plead with you. Make that desire known to me, to our elders, to the whole church, so that we can enter into that process with you, praying, discerning where the Lord might lead you. And it's in this area that I want to honor Sarah for the way she's pursuing the leading of the Lord right now. Ever since she first came to Northwood as an intern to fill Rory's responsibilities while he was on sabbatical, she has been discerning where the Lord is leading her. And most recently, she has begun to consider whether the Lord might be leading her into missions. And unlike the people I mentioned earlier, she is not saying, God has definitely called me to this, but instead has said, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And she's not only asking that about long-term, but even in the short-term, she's asking, what kinds of short-term trips should I participate in to evaluate whether I'm called to missions? So Sarah, I want to say, I'm so proud of you for having the courage to invite us into that process. And I'm also honored on behalf of us that she would trust us enough to enter into that process. And I want to encourage you that if you have seen giftedness for missions, to let Sarah know that. Encourage her with that. And if you have an appropriate kind of relationship with her where you could do this, let her know if you see areas in her character, her fruitfulness, her biblical knowledge that she may want to give attention to before she goes to the mission field. And all of us, let's pray for her. Pray that the Lord would offer her wisdom and discernment as she seeks the Lord's leading. I love this because the local church is central in God's plan for the nations. God has established the church to preach the gospel, to raise up missionaries, to send and confirm missionaries as they go out, who will then establish local churches in other areas that will then keep the ministry going for decades to come. The local church is central and God's plan for the nations. And so the third characteristic of faithful missions is that it is confirmed by the local church. Look with me in verse 4 for the fourth characteristic. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Here we see faithful missions is more than pioneer cross-cultural ministry. Faithful missions is more than pioneer cross-cultural ministry. Now, this verse may not sound all that significant, just stating where they went, but I want you to notice that the first place they go is to Cyprus. And this is worth noticing for three reasons. First, Barnabas is from Cyprus. And Cyprus, as well as basically the whole Roman world at that time, spoke Greek. And so that shows us part of what enables Barnabas and Saul to be able to do missions so quickly in this area is they already knew the culture and spoke the language. Second, Cyprus is only 60 miles from Antioch, and in those days would have been about a day's journey. Geographically, that's about the same distance from here to Lakeland. And in terms of travel time, that's about the same uh, distance as from here to the Panhandle or to parts of Georgia. It's not necessarily all the way out there. And third, this is not the first evangelistic effort to Cyprus. If you were to go back and read Acts 11.19, we'd see that persecution sent people 
to Cyprus to preach the gospel. So some sort of evangelistic work has already been done in Cyprus. Why do I bring all this up? Simply to draw attention to the fact that this mission is more than pioneer cross-cultural ministry. In other words, it's not taking the gospel to a place that has never heard the gospel before. It's already been there. And they're not doing cross-cultural work. Saul already knows Cyprus. or Barnabas already knows Cyprus. Saul already speaks the language. And so although there's some cross-cultural work in that they're taking the gospel to Gentiles and to pagans, on the whole, they already know the culture they're going to. I don't say this to minimize the need for us to take the gospel where it hasn't been preached or to minimize the need for some people to go to places where language learning and cross-cultural skills are required. After all, Paul, the same person on this missionary journey, writes in Romans 15 this, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So according to Paul, after he's planted all these churches in Asia Minor that certainly still have unbelievers in them, he somehow can say, I have fulfilled my ministry in Christ. His sense is, I've planted a church. Now it can reach that area, and I'm going to move on to another area where Christ has never been preached. And so taking the gospel to the unreached is vital and important. And so again, I don't draw our attention to this in order to minimize the need to take the gospel to the unreached, but only to validate mission and church planting to areas where the gospel has already been preached, where we won't need to cross cultures and learn new languages. Both mission to the reach and unreached is biblically important. This is why our vision as a church is to see Jesus treasured above all else and made much of in local churches, in the Bay Area, and in every corner of the world. It is entirely appropriate for us to partner with people going to unreached areas and appropriate to partner with church planners in areas like Lakeland or Pensacola or farther away reached areas that are not culturally different like Boston. And it would even be appropriate for us to prioritize church planting in the Bay Area. And in fact, uh, demographically, we have good reason to do that. Over the last five years, our population has grown by 80 people a week. Just to put that in perspective, our average attendance as a church last year was 70 people. That means there are enough people moving here every week that if somehow we are able to gather them all into a church, we could start a new church every week. I am not suggesting that we pursue things with that kind of speed, so much as to say there is a desperate need for a greater gospel presence in our area as more and more people move here. And so as I've already mentioned, We're coming into a season where missionaries that we have partnered with for years are coming off the mission field. And over time, these missionaries have shifted the focus from what they originally did and are now doing other things. And as a result of that, our partnerships have gotten a little out of balance. We only have one missionary partner who's living overseas. We have no partners who are actively seeking to reach unreached people groups. And so as we bring on new partners... We want to restore balance, prioritizing planting churches among the reached in our area and even the states, as well as looking to send people to the unreached. And further, we don't see this in our text, but as we continue through Acts, we're going to see the kind of missionary work they gave themselves to was planting new churches and strengthening existing churches. And so as we bring on new partners, we want to be looking for partners where planting new churches and strengthening already existing churches is a clear priority for them. So a fourth characteristic of faithful mission is that it is more than pioneer cross-cultural ministry. Look with me now in verse 5 for the fifth characteristic. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Here we see faithful missions is committed to God's word. Faithful Missions is committed to God's word. Uh, Their ministry was marked by a commitment to God's word. In Acts 13, it's the content of their preaching. They proclaimed the word of God. And if you were to read Paul's letters to the churches that he helps to start, you'd find that again and again, it's God's word that's driving the shape, character, and culture of the kind of church community he's trying to cultivate. So simply put, we want missionaries that we partner with to be saturated with the word of God. 
We want missionaries to know God's word. We want missionaries to be skilled in teaching God's word. We want missionaries who live submitted to God's word. We want missionaries who uh, will help shape a church culture in light of God's word. And in this case, faithful missions and healthy churches share something in common. They're both committed to God's word. We want our church to reverberate with God's word as well so that every relationship, every ministry you enter into, every moment you enter, you have a sense that God's word is there. We want God's word to be read and discussed. This is what community Bible reading is all about. We want God's word to be prayed. This is why Northwood Prayer gives us opportunities to pray in light of scripture every single week. We want God's word to be preached. Which is why our regular practice is to preach through books of the Bible, book by book, passage by passage. And we want God's word to be responded to. This is why every week we give you an opportunity to respond to the preaching of God's word. This is why we offer even reflection questions that might prompt response and give you an opportunity to discuss it later. Both faithful missions and healthy churches share this in common. They are committed to God's word. Sixth. Look with me in verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Here we see faithful missions is a spiritual war. Faithful missions is a spiritual war. Saul and Barnabas preach the word. They eventually come across a Jewish false prophet and magician ironically named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus, and yet this son of Jesus is entirely opposed to Jesus. He had somehow come into a relationship or developed a relationship with the proconsul, which is like the governor of Cyprus. Uh, that the text also describes as an intelligent man. And as Sergius, the proconsul, hears about Barnabas and Saul preaching the word of God, he wants to hear it for himself. But Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus, opposes him at every turn. The text tells us he's trying to turn him away from the faith. And we don't know exactly why he's doing this. Perhaps he recognized that if Uh, the proconsul had finally believed the word of God, he'd lose his influence and power. But regardless of the case, he is trying to keep an intelligent man deceived by his false teaching. And so Saul, who now for the first time in Acts is called Paul, which is not as is commonly taught because God renamed Saul Paul in some miraculous change of persecutor to missionary. It's rather because people often had two names at that time. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paul was his Roman name, and now that Luke is describing missionary work in the Roman world, he's now known as Paul instead of Saul. But regardless of why Saul is called Paul, he confronts Elimus and filled with the Holy Spirit, tells him as one who is seeking to oppose the gospel that he is a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, and full of deceit and villainy. The Bible makes it clear that we have a very real spiritual enemy. The devil is also called Satan, who seeks to accuse God's people, who opposes God at every turn. He is the father of lies, full of deceit and opposing righteousness. And here we see that when we embrace deceit and oppose righteousness, we show ourselves to be a son of the devil. And so, in this moment, as Elimus reveals himself to be a son of the devil by opposing the gospel and seeking to deceive the proconsul, Paul pronounces a temporary judgment on him. He says that he would be blind and unable to see, but the text points out this will only be for a time. Yet this temporary judgment 
is an anticipation of the eternal punishment that the devil will receive along with all who join him in opposing God and his people and the gospel. And as Paul pronounces this judgment, it immediately falls on Elimus, such that he actually needs someone to lead him by the hand because he can no longer see. This opposition of Elimus against the gospel and Paul's victory over him immediately is a picture of the spiritual war that goes on all the time. We really do have a spiritual enemy who is seeking to destroy everyone, who is seeking to turn us away from faith and the gospel through lies and deceit. And yet when Jesus died on the cross, he did not stay dead, but rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil. And when he comes back, his victory will be fully and finally complete. And so if you are not a Christian, if you have never repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, I want you to see here that unbelief is not about how intelligent you are. It's about deception. The proconsul is described as an intelligent man. But the reason he had not yet believed was because this man was deceiving him. He was deceived by the false teaching of Bar-Jesus. In the same way, intelligent people don't refuse to become Christians because they're intelligent, but rather because they've been deceived. The Bible tells us right now the devil is deceiving the nations. And if you consider yourself a person of intelligence, but are reluctant to come to Jesus because you think you have to check your brains at the door or suspend critical thinking in order to become a Christian, then I want to suggest to you, you've been deceived. Christianity is an intellectually satisfying faith. It has good and helpful answers to life's deepest problems. And further, it's logically and internally consistent, unlike every other religion that breaks down at some point. And one of those logical consistencies is that it preserves mystery. If we believe that our God is a God of infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge, then it makes sense there are times not when God contradicts himself, but when he would be hard to understand. And this is what we find in the God of the Bible. Again and again, we come up against things that don't contradict one another, but are difficult to understand, that show us the glory and power of God. But Satan knows all of this, and so instead of allowing you to consider the claims of Christianity for yourself, he'd rather sell you on the lie that to become a Christian is to be intellectually dishonest. But you can be an intellectually honest Christian. Ultimately, we believe Jesus is the Son of God who became a man who lived a perfect life in representation of us to earn the righteousness we owed to God and then died on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserve because we did not give God the righteousness we owed and then rose from the dead so that anyone who trusts in him could have forgiveness and abundant life. And Paul tells us that if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then it's all for nothing. Listen, only intellectually honest people tell you how you can prove that they're wrong. And that is what Christianity does. Prove that Jesus did not rise from the dead, and it's in vain. It's worthless. And so if you're not a Christian, please take the time to consider the claims of Christianity. Take the time to consider the person and work of Jesus. Because the temporary picture of judgment on Elimus is a picture of the eternal judgment you will face if you do not turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. But just as God was patient with Elimus, giving him only a temporary judgment that would then allow him to see once again and maybe even come to see and believe in Jesus, right now, God is being patient towards you. He's brought you here today to hear the gospel. He is giving you the opportunity by the breaths you're breathing to consider the claims of Christ. So don't squander it. Take time urgently to consider the claims of Christ. If you need to talk more about what that looks like, if you have serious questions about Christianity, I'd love to talk with you about that. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to come to Jesus and trust him. But don't delay considering his claims. Don't delay considering who he is and what he's done. Take the time while God is being patient with you now to consider who he is and what he's done. But if you are a Christian, what I want you to notice here is that we should not be surprised by opposition. 
Again and again, we find in the New Testament, we are engaged in a spiritual war, which means things being difficult, things going wrong, are not necessarily a sign that God is displeased with us or that we are outside of God's will. In fact, that's the normal expectation for the Christian. Suffering, trial, tribulation, difficulty until Jesus comes back. And so difficulties in your life could actually be a sign that you are being faithful to the gospel. The enemy doesn't like that, and he's attacking you for it. So spiritual warfare should not be a surprise to us, but should be something we expect as a result of our commitment to the gospel. There's two errors we can make here. On the one hand, we can ignore spiritual warfare altogether and minimize the fact that there is an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. But we can also see Satan behind every bush and barrel. And somewhere in the middle is more appropriate to see that the enemy really would oppose us for being faithful to Jesus. And so if you're experiencing trials and difficulties right now, I want to invite you to put on the eyes of faith. And ask yourself, are the trials and troubles and temptations in your life possibly a sign that the enemy is opposing you for your commitment to the gospel? I know some of you, like me, when you first got to Northwood, your life has been marked by trials and difficulty. And it's easy in those moments to wonder, did I make the wrong decision? Let me plead with you to see that God is at work. And those trials and difficulties could really be a sign that the enemy is attacking you because he doesn't want you to persevere. And so instead of allowing the enemy's intended goal through trials and difficulties to be the effect in your life, let God's purposes for trials to be its effect. James writes this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Look, we have an enemy, and he brings trials and tribulations into our life to destroy our faith. But God would use those same trials instead to produce perseverance, to produce maturity. And so let God have his work in you. See what God is doing through your trials and rejoice. The sixth characteristic of faithful missions is that it is a spiritual war. Finally, look with me in verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here we see faithful missions is for the good of the church. Correction, faithful missions is for the good of the nations nations. The proconsul believed when he saw what had happened to bar Jesus for opposing the gospel. But I want you to notice that's when he believed, not why he believed. The text tells us the reason he believed was that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. As he considered the word of God and how it pointed him to our only hope in life and death, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he believed God's word did a work in his heart, bringing him from unbelief to faith in Christ. And although this won't be the response of everyone who hears God's word and the gospel it points to, this is what our hope is. Our hope is that people would hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and be saved. And this is one more reason why after worship of God, we want to give ourselves to the mission to the nations for their good. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Listen, Northwood, God has called us to a mission to the nations. We want to be faithful to that mission. We don't just want to give ourselves to getting the gospel there no matter what it takes. We want to do so in a way that is faithful and honoring to God. We want to give ourselves to that mission wholeheartedly and faithfully. And so faithful missions begins with healthy churches. And so as we give ourselves to growing in health here, 
Let's trust that God will use that to advance his name among the nations. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit. It's confirmed by local churches. It's more than pioneer cross-cultural ministry. It's committed to God's word. It is a spiritual war, and it's for the good of the nations. This is the mission we want to give ourselves to. And so as we conclude our time together, let's reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. Perhaps these questions will help you reflect, and I hope will even be a good launching point for conversation later. How is worship of God fueling your love for the nations? Or how can you tend to your worship of God? How central is the role of the local church in your view of missions? Are you prepared to send out our best and most gifted members for the sake of God's kingdom? How is God's word reverberating in our ministries? Where are you experiencing spiritual warfare as a result of your commitment to the gospel? Let's take some time to consider what God is saying to us through his word. God, we want to thank you for the signs that you are already at work among us. Lord, I know there are people in this room who are experiencing spiritual warfare as a result of their faithfulness to you. I know there are people who you are doing a work in their life to give them a burden for the nations because they love you. And I know that your word is reverberating throughout our congregation as people read your word, talk about your word, apply your word to their lives. God, we thank you for this work among us. And we ask, as we taste and see the glory of Jesus, as we find him all satisfying and treasure him more and more, that you would lead us through him deeper into the mission you have entrusted to us, into greater faithfulness for your glory among the nations. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.